Well, today I add the 10th and final message to the series that I've been in over the last several months, a series that I'm calling The Fruit of Transformation. Today I'm going to minister through a message I'm calling Slaves to Righteousness. This series has been like a pregnancy for me. I've grown very fond of this series because I love seeing people set free. And as I think back about what was the purpose of these messages, and if I was to put it into a statement, I would say it's to bring clarity to who we really are in Christ so that we might be healed of toxic emotions and fragmented identity. What do I mean by that? People are dealing with such inner conflict. A lot of that is just because the emotional realm is so toxic. It's because of what they've stared at. It's because of what they've heard, what they've seen, what they've believed. And they've allowed their emotional realm to become toxic. I've got good news for you. Jesus can bring you out of that. He can heal those toxic emotions. And he can heal the fragmented identity that most people carry. Because quite frankly, most people do not carry a good image of themselves. They've got a good image of Christ but they don't know that that image of Christ is supposed to belong to them. That image of Christ should become their image of themselves because his righteousness, like I said, is our righteousness. And I've wanted us to see that we have been cross-pollinated with Jesus's righteousness. And I want you to know something. It is a righteousness that will never, ever diminish. It doesn't increase. It doesn't decrease. We got it all in fullness. It's a righteousness that never diminishes. I was talking with a man over the phone on Friday of this past week here. A man I've only talked to on two occasions. It was a business telephone call. And I noticed right out of the gate, this man was agitated. He just seemed irritated in life. He tried to argue with me about everything. And finally, I just said, sir, I said, we can just end the conversation if you want. If you don't want to talk to me, that's fine. But if you want to keep talking, I'll listen. And he wanted to keep talking. And as we got deeper into the conversation, he said to me, Sir, he said, do you know what dyslexia is? I said, yes, sir, I know what dyslexia is. He said, from a child, he said, I have had dyslexia. And he said, all of my life I've been called stupid. And when he said that to me, there was something that radically shifted in my heart. I had a compassion for this man because I could identify with him. I could understand where he was coming from. It was almost like someone came along in life and took one of those stickers that say, hello, my name is. And somebody wrote stupid on that sticker and pasted it to his chest. And so his identity became toxic with the thought that I'm just stupid. I said to him, sir, I will never call you that. And I said, besides that, you're no doubt smarter in certain ways than many, many, many other people. And it just broke my heart when he was telling me these things. And I thought, isn't this why Jesus became a man? So that he could come and identify with humanity? but not only come and 
identify with humanity, but come and die for humanity. This is one of the flesh's favorite names for us. I don't believe there's probably a person in this room that somewhere throughout life didn't call your own self stupid. It usually looks like this. You bang your head a couple of times and go, man, I am so stupid. You stupid dummy. And we add, keep just adding words to it, don't we? I don't think there's probably a person in here who hasn't done that somewhere in life. Listen, I may call an action that was not smart. That was stupid. But I never refer to myself as stupid because that is not my identity. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. And if you ever catch yourself doing that, you renounce that. Just say, no, that is not who I am. That is never who I want to be. That is not what I want to live out. But one of the flesh's favorite names for us is to just wreck us at our core. You are stupid. And this man from a child had been carrying that label on him. Now I could suddenly see why he's so bitter, why he's so argumentative, why he just wants to fight me at every turn. And I'm trying to help him. I get it now. So it's a great passion of mine to see souls come to Jesus. I want to be honest with you, I never tire of watching the new birth. I never go, oh, that's old hat. Everyone is so different. Everyone is so unique. And I just love watching people come to Christ. I'm passionate about that. But I'm equally passionate about helping new creations fall deeper in love with Christ. I mean, if you were to ask me, Mark, how do you do that? How do you help someone fall deeper in love with Christ? Well, first of all, you've got to ask yourself the same question. How do I fall deeper in love with Christ? Friends, he's as deep in love with you as he's ever going to be. So don't we all think that sometimes we say it in a different form? I wish I had a closer relationship with the Lord. You can find all kinds of ways to say that. But what we're really saying is, how can I fall deeper in love with Christ? And I don't know as though there's a cookie cutter answer to this. I don't think there's a, you just follow these three steps and it's going to happen. But if I was to basically put it into words, how do you fall deeper in love with Christ? I would say it begins with grace and truth at its foundation. One cannot be healthy apart from grace and truth as the foundation. What you build upon is so vital, so important, so essential. So if we have a faulty foundation, then we can only expect chaos on top of that. Jesus would say that. He says the wise man builds his house on a rock. Jesus, of course, is that rock, isn't he? The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. And when the storm, that means when the chaos comes, when the collusion comes, we don't know how to handle it and our homes fall down. But I believe it starts with grace and truth at the foundation. I believe when that is in place, where you are willing to listen to the spirit of grace and the spirit of truth, I believe simultaneously what begins to happen is the grave clothes of performance and the grave clothes of condemnation are removed. It's a very subtle thing. It happens over time. But I can tell you for certain that at one time, I had a wardrobe full of grave clothes. Condemnation, guilt, shame, fear. A wardrobe full of performance. But one by one, sometimes I believe it's like message by message. The Holy Spirit walks over to your closet and He takes a hanger out, a garment out, and He says, you won't be needing this anymore. 
You won't be needing this anymore. And eventually, those grave clothes of performance and condemnation and all these fierce things that come against us begin to disappear. When grave clothes are removed, Jesus is revealed. When Jesus is revealed, grave clothes are removed. They work hand in glove. I'm talking about, again, the grave clothes, primarily of performing to please God. You say, would anybody do that? Almost everybody does that, friends. Almost everybody feels like I've got to perform. I've got to be on my best behavior. I've got to perform to please my father. How did we get that ideology? Because that's kind of how it works in our families. That's how it works at school. That's how it works at our jobs. We have to perform to climb some sort of corporate ladder. We have to perform in order not to get punished at home. And so we take that philosophy, and I think it's good to perform well in those places. Don't get me wrong. But somehow we negate grace. We negate the finished work of the cross by saying, I've got to add to Jesus' performance so I don't feel condemned. Condemnation will look you square in the eyes and it won't even flinch as it tells you that you are guilty. It will put that name tag right on your chest. You're guilty. Condemnation will look you in the eyes and tell you you're shameful. Condemnation will look you in the eyes and tell you you are a failure. Condemnation will fasten a hello, my name is stupid sticker on your chest. Friends, I've come by this morning to tell you, don't you listen to the voice of condemnation. You listen to the voice of grace and truth. Condemnation is not from our covenant. How do I know that? Romans 8.1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is not part of your covenant. I want you to say that on the inside of your heart this morning. Condemnation is not part of my covenant. We listen to the voice of grace. We listen to the voice of truth. And those that are in Christ Jesus, they have the ability to hear grace and truth. We listen to his heart, what he has to say. The one thing I've come to know is that the Holy Spirit will not condemn us. He is not there to condemn us. You know what he's there to do? He's there to constantly remind us. What is he there to remind us of? That we are sons of God. He's there to remind us that we are slaves to righteousness. A slavery that you cannot get out from under, yet there's no oppression. Isn't that beautiful? So when we hear the word slave, we think of this negative connotation. When you're a slave to righteousness, that's a good thing. Because we have a good master. He's not a taskmaster that's mean and that will beat us if we don't perform. No, he's a good master. So performing to please God and then feeling the heavy weight of condemnation, they're systemic. I want to be honest with you. They're systemic within the body of Christ. You see, at one time, we were all, every one of us were dressed in grave clothes. You say, who dressed us? <laughs> well, it was the mixture of the two covenants that dressed you in grave clothes. It was the mixture of law and grace. If there was no mixture, friends, you would not be wearing the grave clothes of condemnation. If all you had was the voice of the spirit of grace and truth speaking into your life, there would be no condemnation. But the grave clothes have come to us simply because we have listened to the old covenant and we've mixed it in with the new covenant. Yes, it's in the Bible, but friends, the old covenant has come to a close. 
So believers fall deeper in love with Jesus when they are, I believe, introduced to grace and truth, not laws and commands. I can't even imagine what uh, the relationship would have looked like with Valerie and I if, if all we had was laws and commands. But you wouldn't want to live in a relationship that was just all about laws and commands, would you? No, you certainly wouldn't. I'm talking about the graces and truths that are found within the new covenant. The finished work of grace. That's what we talk about all the time. The finished work of Jesus Christ. It's through the revelation of Jesus and the new covenant that we discover the width and the length and the depth and the height of the Father's great love for us. It's through that covenant that you see this constant love for us. It's beautiful to behold. Mixing the old covenant with the new covenant has been and continues to be the single greatest shoplifter of our peace and rest. You say, what are you saying, Pastor Mark? I'm saying that when the old covenant and the new covenant are mixed together, they don't go on a shopping spree. They go on a shoplifting spree. You know what they shoplift? They shoplift things like our peace and our rest. They shoplift our confidence and our joy. They are great shoplifters when you mix these two covenants together. Mixing the two covenants together and then hoping that it won't affect you is, as I've said before, is as silly as giving a two-year-old a sucker and somehow believing that he won't end up sticky. <laughs> it's just impossible. Come on. You can't give a two-year-old a sucker and have that kid end up without sticky hands, can you? No, you can't do it. How many of you know that's pretty much impossible? It is. The old covenant is a sticky sucker in our hands, and it needs to be discarded. I want you to imagine something for a moment. Can you imagine your barber cutting your hair with sticky hands? <laughs> it would be a mess, wouldn't it? He's clipping away, and all of a sudden your hair is sticking to his hands, and he's trying to shake your hair. It'd be a mess, friends. I'm telling you, when we allow the old covenant to stick to any part of us, our mind, our will, our emotional realm. It becomes a mess everywhere. The old covenant grows cataracts over the eyes of the believer. For your information, cataracts cause the lenses of our eyes to become cloudy. And what happens is eventually cataracts will impair. They will affect the way you see things. And so when our spiritual vision is affected, then it makes it a challenge to see Jesus in all of his loveliness. And I'll tell you what else that happens is that we often misinterpret the heart of the Father. In other words, we hear, but we misinterpret. And I think that's why some people don't trust the Lord. They want you to pray. They want you to pray for them. They want you to go to God for them because they don't trust that they're going to hear correctly. Maybe they're facing a major decision. And with cataracts over someone's eyes, they can't trust what they're seeing exactly because they're seeing in part, right? And so when we think about the old covenant like a cataract over our heart, what it does is two things really is suddenly you cannot see Jesus in all of his loveliness. And so the transformation of the soul is not taking place. And we don't hear the heart of the Father who's trying to minister sweet morsels to our soul. 
and bring peace and rest and joy and confidence back into our hearts. I'm talking about the heart that wants to reveal daddy's unconditional love, but the label, you're stupid, got pinned on your chest. It doesn't literally get pinned on our chest, but it gets pinned in our mind. In other words, we want to believe that daddy's love is unconditional because in this moment of my life, I need unconditional love. But somebody pinned a sticker on my chest that says, you're stupid. And you know what? That sticker has a voice. You may only see it in print, but it's got a voice and it keeps speaking to you. It does. I'm talking about daddy's extravagant grace. He wants us to see this, but the cataracts of the old covenant have distorted our vision. And in the process, you know what they've done? They've made us slaves to fear rather than slaves to righteousness. How many of you know that blind people don't like you moving their furniture around? In fact, I've seen people who've had a blind animal and they won't even move their furniture because the animal learns where everything's at, knows where to jump and where not to jump. And so just out of compassion, they won't even move their furniture around. You can go there for a lot of years. The furniture's all in the same spot. So God wants us to see his extravagant grace. But again, the cataracts of the old covenant have been put over the heart of people when they listen to that. And they don't know how to rightly divide the word of truth and grace. And so it distorts their vision and they cannot see. And they end up as slaves to fear rather than slaves to righteousness. I'm talking about the graces and truths that want to unmask daddy's generosities and daddy's unrivaled acts of kindness and mercy. But we won't let go of the sticky sucker of the old covenant. And like the barber, we end up with sticky hands and a sticky heart. Very, very messy. In Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17, I want you to see this from the Amplified Bible. It says, The Lord, that is Jehovah, the Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. That literally means he will rest in his love. He's resting in his love. He's not frantic. He's not pacing the halls of heaven. He's not running to and fro. We might be, but he's not. The Bible says he will be quiet in his love. And I love this next part, making no mention of your past sins. Come on now, really? How can you be quiet when all you've seen is my sin and all the stuff I'm doing? Well, that's because in 1 Corinthians, the scriptures say love keeps no record of our sins. Love keeps no record of our wrongs. You need to quit keeping a record of your wrongs. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with joy. What kind of joy are we talking about? Joy unspeakable and full of glory. He will be quiet, restful in his love, making no mention of your past sins. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Some versions say with singing. Same thing, shouts of joy, singing. Hey, I think maybe uh, I'll just quit singing. I'll just be known as the man with the shouts of joy. How about that? 
Shouts of joy. So let's ask a couple of questions here. Number one, is the Lord in our midst? Yes, he is. Of course he is. Is he the warrior that saves? Yes. Does he make mention of our past sins? No. Does he rejoice over us with joy and singing? Yes. Friends, let me tell you something. This is from the scriptures, but if you're wearing the cataracts of the old covenant or the name tag stupid, then it's going to be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to see and believe the truths of Zephaniah, especially the one in that he makes no mention of our sins. That one's going to be very hard for you to embrace, very challenging for you to believe. My encouragement to you would be a couple of things. Number one, remove these identifying nameplates anything that is not synonymous with righteousness. Number two, discard the sticky sucker of the old covenant and wash your mind in the truth that by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Wash yourself, bathe yourself in that grace, bathe yourself in that truth. It will do wonders for you. You say, Pastor Mark, come on now, <laughs> come on now. You got a few minutes left. Make this simple for me. Make this plain, would you? Oh, I'll be happy to. You say, what's the big deal about mixing old covenant with the new covenant? Come on, what's the big deal about that? You're always making a big deal about that. A few years ago, the Lord said to me, what is your wife's blood type? I said, she's A positive. He said, what is your blood type? I said, I'm O positive. He said, do you realize that a thimble full of your wife's blood injected into you would kill you? <laughs> no, I didn't realize that. How could something so small do such great damage? Because her blood and my blood are not compatible. They are not congruent with one another. They do not make good roommates. Okay? Allow that thought to stick to your heart this morning that even a thimble full of her blood would kill me. Her blood works perfect in her body. The old covenant worked perfect for those that were under the old covenant. My blood works perfect in my body. The new covenant works perfect for those that are under the new covenant. But when you mix them together, they don't work perfect anymore. What's my point? Again, the old covenant injected into the new covenant believer it brings side effects. Do you want to know what the side effects are? Condemnation and fear. Those are two of the biggest ones. More of them, but those are the heavy hitters right there. When you inject the old covenant, old covenant ideology into a new covenant believer, what you have is condemnation and fear. Did you ever notice how the people of the old covenant were always under condemnation? They're always so fearful, you know, had to do every little thing right and stuff like that. If they colored outside the lines even a little bit, they had reason to be afraid because the old covenant, the law, if you will, was an all or nothing proposition. That's how it worked. It wasn't part and parcel. I'll do these 250 these I won't, these I'll do intermittently. No, you had to obey the whole 613 laws all the time. And if you didn't, you fell under condemnation, you fell under fear. How would you like to live in a condemnation covenant like that? Would you like that? <laughs> Yet many believers are still trying to live there. It shouldn't be so, should it? Come on, you know in the depths of your hearts right now, that doesn't sound right. 
Why would Jesus come and die on a cross to give us another set of rules to follow? Come on. Think about it. That would be pure foolishness. That what was the purpose of Christ coming? He came because nobody had been perfect up to that time. And so they were under a system that could not make you perfect. The scriptures tell us that the law made nothing perfect. Yet it was perfect. It was holy. It was righteous. It was good. But the law itself made nothing perfect. And so when we take the law almost like a blood transfusion and we allow the law to drip into our heart, we don't know how to rightly divide the word of truth and the word of grace. You know what it will do? It will bring condemnation. It will bring fear into your heart. Ultimately, many believers are repeatedly transfused on a regular basis. You know what happens many times? Unfortunately, it's from the pulpit. Because what they're getting transfused with is old covenant ideology and mandates. And again, it shouldn't be so. Let me draw your attention to another question. I told you, God speaks to me in pictures, right? He speaks to me in little movies, little vignettes in my mind. Let me ask you a question. If you were to breed a male St. Bernard with a female Chihuahua, what do you suppose would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. You would have signed the death certificate of that Chihuahua. Not because of the mating process, but because of the pregnancy. You see, as that little Chihuahua began to develop in her pregnancy, she would begin to grow so big that literally it would rip her apart at the seams. She wasn't made for something like that. You and I were not made for the old covenant. We're new creations in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Did you know that a single puppy of a St. Bernard is larger than the whole Chihuahua? Now imagine that trying to grow on the inside of you. It just, it's a recipe for disaster, friends. St. Bernard's and little Chihuahuas are not compatible. They're not congruent. They're fine by themselves, but it is a caustic combination when you bring them together, isn't it? Can you see how that would happen? Likewise, new creations in Christ are not designed, we're not created to be impregnated with the law. It's a caustic combination and a recipe for disaster and failure. It's a recipe that will split our emotions wide open. Your emotional realm, your thoughts will run rampant with fear and condemnation and shame and guilt and performance. Mixing the law with grace Old covenant with new covenant will grab a sharpie and a name tag and write stupid on it and put it right on your chest. What happens when you mix baking soda with vinegar? What happens when you mix bleach with ammonia? Come on. You have volatile responses, don't you? Come on, we've all learned this. I learned this in grade school, friends. There's a volatile response that takes place. And the Apostle Paul addressed this very same subject when he wrote his letter to the Roman believers. In his letter, he wanted them to see what happens 
when you mix the wrong things together. He said, I'm going to take you on a journey all throughout that book. And he said, I'm going to show you in different places what happens when you mix things together. We see these truths in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Look at this. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law. I want to stop right there for a second. Look at what he said. He said, I'm going to talk to somebody. Let me talk to the people who know the law. I mean, you know it frontwards and backwards. You know all 613 commandments, do's and don'ts. You know the law. You're not just lightly acquainted with it. You know it. He said, I want to talk to those people here, okay? And then maybe you can go and explain to everybody else. He said, do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. Underscore those words in your mind. Only as long as he lives. Now let me interject what I felt the Holy Spirit say to me yesterday. You can't expect dead men to obey laws, can you? You know, going through this COVID season, I attended a funeral or two, but I noticed no corpse was wearing a mask. Even though we had mask mandates here and there, they don't make a corpse wear a mask. That's because dead men don't have to obey laws. I want you to imagine with me for a moment. Here you are. You got a corpse in the chair, in a wheelchair, okay? You got a corpse in a wheelchair. You decide to take him to Walmart. There he is. You're going up and down aisles of Walmart. And you decide, you know what? This would be a great day to do some shoplifting. I'm going to take things. I'm going to put it in this corpse's pants, stick some in his coat here a little bit. Yet security is watching you. They're seeing you do all this stuff, and they're waiting for you when you leave the store. And they've got the cops there to stop you and said, sir, is there something in your pants that you didn't pay for? Oh, no, no, there's nothing in my pants I didn't pay for. Uh, no, not at all. You mind if we check the man in the chair? Oh, sure. And they start pulling out all the goods. Let me ask you just a silly question. Who's going to get arrested? Is it the corpse? Or is it the man pushing him? I mean, if you took the corpse to the county jail, friends, you need to resign from being a police officer, okay? You see why? Why? Because a corpse can't break a law. And the Apostle Paul is coming right out of the gate going, look, he's saying here, he said, I'm talking to men who know the law, that the law only has authority over a man as long as he lives. For example, he says, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. <laughs> Look at these words. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Paul is using familiar language to explain a deeper, more spiritual truth. He is telling the Roman believers that the law has authority over a man as long as he lives, but then he skillfully builds in a provision for the bride to be released from the law. Would you like to know what the provision is? And the husband has to die. That's the provision. Paul likens the husband to be the law in this narrative, but he's not the only husband on the scene. Thank God. But he's going to liken this husband that he's talking about as the law. So let's ask the question, okay? Because this question comes up, sometimes we don't know how to answer it. Sometimes it comes up out there in the real world. Did the law die? Now just don't answer it out loud, because you might be surprised. Did the law die? 
The answer is no. The law didn't die. <laughs> and you say, then we're not released from the law. Oh, not so fast. Paul said that if the husband dies, then she, that's the bride, is released from the law of marriage. You see, friends, the law was not the husband that died. Jesus was the husband that died. And the scriptures tell us that in his death, he released us from the law of marriage to Mr. Law. We are no longer slaves. We are no longer the bride. We are no longer slaves to the law. We are slaves to righteousness. You see how that works? Continuing in the scriptures, Paul says, So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, he's back on this again, if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. Next scriptures. Friends, let this set you free right here. He says, So my brothers, look what he says, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. Please do not forget these scriptures. Go back to them over and over again. In Romans chapter 7, what does he say? He says, you died to the law. How? Through the body of Christ. You didn't die to the law by completing the laws and doing everything right for a month or two or a year or so. No, you died to the law through the body of Christ. I love this, that you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. I don't know how he could make that more plain, friends. Hanging on to Mr. Law is about as useless as hanging on to a business card that you used to work for and passing them out. I mean, it just wouldn't make any sense. Hanging on to Mr. Law is like taking a corpse, grocery shopping. It's a lot of extra work and you'll get no help from the corpse, friends. And Mr. Law is not there to help you either. Mr. Law didn't die. Jesus died. Mr. Law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. I was sharing that with somebody earlier this week. He said, well, what is the law for now then? Our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Like I've said before, he's like a chauffeur. All he can do is bring you to the cross. Open your door, let you out, close the door, and then drive and get another one. Bring them to the cross. The law never saved anybody, friends. It's Jesus and his cross and his resurrection that saved us. Amen. Mr. Law didn't die, Jesus died. So the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But after we have come to Christ by faith, the law does not have authority to condemn us when we fail. Not if we fail, when we fail. The law has no authority in your life to condemn you. You do not listen to him. That would be like an ex-spouse calling you up and trying to manage your affairs. You don't have to listen to that person, okay? You say, then the Holy Spirit must be the one that condemns us. Oh, no. No, sir. No, ma'am. The Holy Spirit, again, his role is not to condemn. His role is to remind us that we are sons of God 
and that we are slaves to righteousness. That's what he does, and he does it perfectly. He does it well. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, we find these words. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Look what it says now. Wherefore the law was, not is, not forever will be, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after the faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster for ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Who did the scriptures reference as the schoolmaster? The law. And he says, you are no longer under the schoolmaster when you've come to Christ by faith. You say, how did Jesus' death set us free from the law? Well, friends, it's because we died on the cross with him. We died with Christ on the cross. So not only did the groom die, but the bride died with him. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. I don't work against that truth. Let that truth be my reality to say that I need to add something to that is frustrating the grace of God. Paul said, I do not frustrate the grace of God for if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. We see the same truth in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Paul said, knowing this, <laughs> that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, Death hath no more dominion, or it literally means authority. It has no more value in him. Death has no more dominion over him. And the law, friends, has no more dominion, no more authority over you and me, because we died with Christ. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, I like this part. He said, likewise, Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Mixing the old covenant with the new covenant or mixing the two covenants together may not split our body wide open, but it'll split our emotions wide open. I can tell you that for sure. And toxic emotions rob believers of their peace, robs believers of their rest. When toxic emotions and fragmented identity are given authority to reign, you know what happens? They become our masters and we become their slaves. We cower to them. We bow to them. We submit to them. It shouldn't be so. How many of you know that it's virtually impossible to be a slave without having a master? You can't be a slave if there's not a master present. The very definition of slave 
is one who acquiesces to a master. That's a slave. Now, masters come in many forms. They can come in the forms of people. They can come in the forms of addictions. They can just be things. Money can become a master. Drugs can become a master. Somebody can have an inordinate affection for their career. That can become their master. Hobbies can master people. And in the process, we become slaves to those things. Many people, including believers, listen to me carefully, are a slave to the fear of death. Now listen, I don't want to go before my time. But I've thought about this. When the time comes, whatever that looks like, unless my life is taken suddenly, on my deathbed, I'll be reflecting back, going, Daddy, I love you so much. Daddy, thank you for your love for me. Daddy, we did this together, didn't we? Daddy, thank you for letting me help you in seeing people set free from the bondages that they've walked in, this bondage of condemnation and fear. So why are people a slave to the fear of death? Do you believe that it's God's will for you? I mean, do you think it's his will for his children to fear death? <laughs> of course not. It's not his will that you fear anything. So then, what did Jesus do to release us from the fear of death. What did he do to release us from that? Friends, it's so simple. He introduced us to death. Remember, we died with Christ. And we were raised with Christ in resurrection, life, and power. If you had a man who had a fear of heights, the only way to overcome the fear of heights is to introduce him to heights. <laughs> do you see that? You can't get over your fear of heights from ground level. We get over our fear of death by understanding I've already been introduced to death. I died with Christ. I was crucified with Christ on the cross. I've been introduced to death, but I've also been introduced to life, resurrection life and power. I don't need to fear death. And the only way for a man to have a better image of himself is to allow the truth that we are slaves to righteousness. Remove the, hello, my name is stupid label off of you. Hello, I'm a sinner label off of you. No, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. Let's ask the question again. What did Jesus do to release us from the fear of death? He introduced us to death. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we find these words. Since the children have flesh and blood, in other words, he's telling me we're pretty fragile, aren't we? He too shared in their humanity, he became a man, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He takes this personal. He says, you know what? I know how you're feeling. Nobody out here knows it, but I know it because I can read your heart. I can read your mind. I know what bugs you. I know what makes you tick. And you're afraid of death. You're a slave to that. And how am I ever going to get over that? You understand, friends, you've been introduced to death in the body of Christ. 
but he didn't leave us in the grave. We rose with him in resurrection, life and power. How was the fear of death broken off of our lives? By Jesus' death and our death in him. So let's tackle the most obvious question again. Why would a believer fear death? The scriptures tell us to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Isn't that good news? I think that's good news scripture, isn't it? So why would we fear death if the scriptures say to be absent with the body, present with the Lord? In fact, one version says in the twinkling of an eye. Very, very fast. So fast you don't even have time to process anything. I think most of us end up there and go, what just happened? I was eating lunch, and what happened? Absent with the body, present with the Lord. So why would I fear death? Now listen to me carefully, because I want my internet audience to hear this as well, because I know they struggle like many people do. Why do you fear death? Because many believers are not convinced that grace through faith is sufficient for eternal life. They are not convinced of that. Oh, they'll say it tongue-in-cheek, but when it comes down to where the rubber meets the road, they don't believe that. They're not convinced in their heart that it's grace through faith that gives me eternal life and nothing can change that. They're not convinced. If we really believe this, then we would have no fear of death. I want you to stare at the next two verses on the PowerPoint. I want you to ask yourself this question. What else can I personally add to salvation that will make it more finished? Look at these scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Let's see if we can break this scripture down a little bit for you, okay? For by grace, that is God's unmerited favor, undeserved, uncommon, unwarranted favor, by that, for by God's unmerited favor, nothing you could have done to earn this. It is by God's unmerited favor that you've been saved. What have you been saved from? You've been saved from the penalty of sin. That's what you've been saved from. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. For by God's unmerited favor have you been saved from the penalty of sin. And then it says by faith or through faith. You know what faith is? It's persuasion. It's the Holy Spirit coming and persuading, massaging your heart that you could believe that truth there. That for by grace are you saved through the very faith that God has given you, the persuasion. Do you know what it literally means? It means you relying upon Christ's sacrifice for your finished work. You're relying upon Christ for this salvation. For by God's unmerited favor are you saved from the penalty of sin. It is through faith, the persuasion of the Holy Spirit working in your heart to tell you that Jesus is the one who's responsible for this. And then he says, not of yourselves. That means it's not of you and it's not from you. It is for you. And then it says, it is the gift of God. I love this. I love this. It says it's the gift of God. That word gift literally means in the Greek, 
sacrifice. You see, friends, it takes on richer meaning when you look at it that way, doesn't it? See, you can give me a gift, and I go, I thank you very much, but I've already got one of those things, but I'm not going to tell you. And then I'm going to take that gift about a month later, and I'm going to give it to a friend of mine who doesn't have one. I've given my friend a gift, right? But there was no sacrifice. <laughs> there was no sacrifice. I paid nothing for that gift, yet it was a gift. See, so behind this word gift here is sacrifice. It's God's sacrifice of his only beloved son. So beautiful. He says, it's not of yourselves, not of you, not from you. It's for you. It's the sacrifice of Jesus, the darling of heaven. And then he says, not of works. That means there's no act. There's no thing that you could do, no deed, no toiling, if you will. Lest any man should boast. And that word boast literally means rejoice or joy. In other words, where you can grab your suspenders and go, I got reason to rejoice. Look what I've done. No, you haven't done anything. Remember, it wasn't of you. It wasn't from you. It was for you. You have no reason to grab your suspenders and rejoice or joy. Look at Zephaniah again. It's he that does the rejoicing and joying over us. Next scripture. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17 again. The Lord your God is the warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will be quiet. He will be restful in his love, making no mention of our past sins. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. That's how he wraps up Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9. He said, boy, you're going to get some rejoicing. You're going to get some joy, but it won't be because of what you've done. It will be because of what I have done. Let me ask you a question. Why do many believers fear death? I've already asked it two times. Why do many believers fear death? Could it be because they have not been persuaded? Remember, persuasion. They have not been persuaded that all of their sins have been taken away. Could it be that? Could there just be something lingering in your heart going, Ooh, I've sinned a lot. Could it be that there's something I think, maybe I'm not forgiven in that area. Could all my sins not be taken away? Wouldn't that be awful if you got all the way to heaven, you lived to be 150 years old, you got all the way to heaven, and God said, you know what? Man, you almost made it. There was just one sin, just one thing you forgot to say sorry about. What kind of God would that be? What kind of God would that be? In 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, we find these words. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Friends, what he's saying in that scripture right there is past sins, present sins, and future sins. He's taken them away. When did he take them away? He took them away at the cross. That was 2,000 years ago. Were you alive at that time? No. How could your sins been remitted for? How could they have been taken away then? Because what he did at the cross, like dropping the pebble in the water, it keeps going until it reaches the shore. You were the shore in that case. Next scripture. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him. And saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John, all he knows is a baptism of repentance. He doesn't know born again. 
He doesn't understand that yet. He knows a baptism of repentance, but he said, I tell you what, I want to draw your attention to someone much greater than I. He can do something for you that I can't do for you. I can baptize you in water for the remission of your sins, but he can take them away. Jesus can take them away. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, your sins have been taken away. Next scriptures. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins. Purged means taken away. Who did it? Look at the words before purge. By himself. Did you help with it? No, by himself he purged our sins and then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Speaking of a finished work. Next scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Who in his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we might be dead to sins. That's what Paul's message was. You're dead to the law. You're dead to sin. How did it happen? Because he bore our sins on a tree. Being dead to sin should, look what he says, should live unto righteousness. In other words, what he's saying is live like you're righteous. Live with that understanding of knowing I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. Live with that understanding. Live with that walk. Being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Now, friends, I'm going to say something. I'm going to take this very slow here because I understand. Some of you might not understand what I'm talking about, okay? How many of you know what a word processor is, right? You know what a word processor is? It's on your computer. It's a program. Microsoft Word, Microsoft Works, whatever it may be. WordPerfect, whatever it may be. This is where you type your letters on. You type to your family. You type all your documents, whatever it may be. And if you misspell a word while you're typing, it will underscore that word with a squiggly line so that it draws your attention to that word saying, hey, you misspelled me. You really want to send this document like this? This word's misspelled. Usually it's because it's misspelled. Sometimes you'll type a word it doesn't recognize. It doesn't have it in its vocabulary, if you will. And so you have to do something totally different about that. But I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you type a letter and you use the name of a granddaughter or a grandson. That is a very uncommon name. And that computer of yours, that word processor does not recognize that name. It's going to underscore it with that little squiggly line. But you know what you do? Imagine you've written that letter and, and you've mentioned her name 20 times in there. When you hover over one of those names and right click, it's going to bring up an option. And it's going to say, would you like to add that to the dictionary? You click on that. Here's the beautiful thing. Once you do it on one of them, it takes care of all of them. You don't have to do that for each one of them. You'd wear yourself out. Because what you've said is, I want you to remember. I want you to recognize that word every time it comes up. I'm going to add it to the dictionary. <laughs> Friends, that's what God did with our sins. It was once for all. It wasn't just a right click with a mouse. It was three nails and a cross. And he said, I'm going to forgive them once for all. Do you see that picture? 
So what comes up a lot in the field out there is people are always saying, oh yeah, you got to confess every single sin or you could be left behind. Friends, I used to preach that message 20 years ago, 25 years ago. I would say, friends, it's not just sin in your life. It's sin and your unwillingness to confess it. Sin and your unwillingness to let go of it. That's what will keep you from God. And so you get asked out in the field, well, Mark, you got to confess every sin. You will wear yourself out. And then you'll get to the end of your life and you'll go, did I confess them all? And so what they'll do is they'll pull a sword on you and they'll say, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, For if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is 1 John chapter 1. How many of you know that 1 John chapter 1 was not written to the believer? It was not written to the brothers and sisters. It was addressing agnostics in the church and those around the church. Those who said, well, we don't really even have any sin. And that's why John would come along and he says, if you'll confess your sin, he'll be faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So friends, what I'm saying here is that we have been forgiven once for all. Friends, remember the words from the prophet Zephaniah. God is at rest in his love for us, making no mention of your past sins. Again, it wasn't a one click with a mouse. It was three nails and a cross. He is the warrior who saves completely. He rejoices over us with shouts of joy. So the architect behind our fear gets its building permit when the old covenant of law is mixed with the new covenant of grace. This morning we sang the song, No Longer Slaves to Fear. What did it say? How did we get free from this fear? By reminding us that He split the sea. He split the Red Sea so that we could walk right through it. And then it says, our fears were drowned in perfect love. Your fears have been drowned in perfect love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, look at this word. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Pretty plain, isn't it? I want you to imagine with me, you're walking along. It's a hot, blistering summer day. Oh, I'm mean, you're just sweating like a crazy man. And you're walking with a couple of friends. And they grab you by the wrists and the ankles. And they swing you like a pendulum. And on the count of three, one, two, three, they sling you like a frisbee out into the middle of the swimming pool. You say, wow, Mark, boy, would that be refreshing. And I agree to the guy that can swim. Not refreshing to the non-swimmer. That wouldn't be refreshing at all. You've got a swimmer, a non-swimmer, two people, one body of water, yet two different responses, two totally different responses. One enjoying it, rejoicing with joy, the other one flailing like crazy just to save his life. There were two groups of people at one time, the Jew and the Gentile, 
the swimmer and the non-swimmer, but through the blood and water that poured from Jesus' side while on the cross. He made the two groups one. Nobody has to drown alone. All come through the same blood and water. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. In other words, you were drowning, no lifeguard on duty. You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Why? Because the old covenant was between God and the Jews. Next scriptures. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, that's the Jew and the Gentile, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Look at these words now. By setting aside in his flesh the law, with its commands and regulations. How did he destroy the barrier, the wall that divided us from him? How did he do that? By setting aside in his own flesh the law, all the things he could have picked to put there. But he picked the culprit. He said, this is what was getting in the way. He said, I've set aside in my flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Friends, there's no difference between Jew or Gentile. There are not two separate swimming pools. There is one body of water and that body is Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all and richly blesses all those who call upon his name for all that call upon his name, the scriptures say, shall be saved. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God. Friends, look at those words. They didn't understand that it's by grace through faith. They didn't understand that's the way righteousness comes. They did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. And that's what we do. We default to establishing our own performance, our own principles, our own righteousness. They sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Next scriptures. Christ, look at these words, is the culmination of the law. What does culmination mean to you? Does it mean end to you? It means it's brought to the head. It's ended. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. See, you've got to keep doing stuff. You want to be righteous? You've got to obey all the laws. But the righteousness that is by faith a different righteousness says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. 
Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, don't develop another checklist. Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? No, no. Righteousness is by faith alone. Next scriptures. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. That means declared righteous. For it's with your heart. For it is with your heart. For it is with your heart, friends, that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Next scriptures. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. You'll never wear the hello, my name is Shane sticker on your chest. You see how that works? He says, you'll never be put to shame for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The law has authority also, but not for the swimmer. It's for the non-swimmer. The one who doesn't know Christ. The law maintains its authority over the bride-to-be if she says no thank you at the altar. Now friends, I've married a few people in my life. I was thinking about this last night. If a man and a woman were standing in front of me to be married, and I got to the vows, and I said, Sir, do you take this woman to be your wife? And the man said, Absolutely do. If I looked at the woman and I said, Ma'am, do you take this man to be your husband? And she said, No. You don't move on in the ceremony. You don't say... We'll get back to that one, okay? Let's get the rest of the... Ser- no! you got to say, ma'am, do you take this man to be your husband? If she says no or she doesn't answer that question, you cannot move on in a ceremony. Yes, Jesus stood at an altar. It's called a cross. Yes, he's the groom. And the bride-to-be is standing there. And those who say yes will be married to Christ. But if in your heart you say no... If in your heart you don't even answer that question as the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart to draw you to Christ and you say, no, thank you. You are not saved. Friends, I am not an inclusionist, okay? I don't care what you say. You've got to confess Christ. What did it say? If you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus was crucified, and you confess, you profess with your mouth. The law has authority over the one that has never exercised their faith to receive a complete and total salvation through the reliance upon Christ alone. I have good news to them that are in Christ. You are no longer under the schoolmaster, a list of commands, a list of regulations. You are no longer under condemnation. You are no longer under the label that announces you as hello, My name is stupid. You are no longer under the authority of your first husband, Mr. Law. 
So the comment that I hear all the time, again, from people who just can't stand it, they just can't accept that their salvation is based solely upon the finished works of Jesus Christ. They say to the finished work ministers, here's what they say, I hear this all the time, you're giving people a license to sin. Have you ever heard anybody say that to you? Have you ever heard those words? You're giving them a license to sin. No, friends, through grace, the only license we need is righteousness, and it comes as a gift. My final scriptures. Romans chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? See, this is where they get that question at. So Paul said, let me ask the same question 2,000 years before you do. So you don't think you came up with this all by yourself. Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? He says, by no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. He's just saying, look, there's some natural consequences for sin. If there was only one reason to avoid it, that'd be a good reason. But how about because of love? Because you love God. Because you love Christ. Because you love what He's done for you on the cross. Because He's setting you so free in your soul. How about for that reason? Next scriptures. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. What a beautiful way to say that. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Do you see that, friends? That was the inspiration for this message. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. It is by God's unmerited favor that we have been saved from the penalty of sin through the persuasion of the Holy Spirit convincing our heart that we must trust in Christ alone for salvation. Righteousness is not of us, Righteousness is not from us. Righteousness is for us. We were made the righteousness of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Not by our own acts, not by our own deeds, lest any man rejoice or joy in his toiling. The Lord is the warrior who saves. He alone provides our righteousness. He will be quiet. He will be at rest in his love making no mention of our past sins. He will rejoice over us with singing. He will rejoice over us with shouts of joy. Righteousness restores our confidence. Righteousness restores our joy. Righteousness restores our peace and our rest. Righteousness removes the cataracts of the old covenant from our eyes and washes our sticky hands and sticky hearts. Righteousness reveals the Father's unconditional love. Righteousness reveals His extravagant grace. 
Righteousness unmasks his outrageous generosity and his unrivaled mercy and kindness. Righteousness confiscates the, hello, my name is stupid sticker, from your chest and from your minds. That's what righteousness will do for you. Friends, there was a time when in our minds, when we were married to Mr. Law, we were mixing the old covenant with the new covenant. Mr. Law had authority over us, but in the crucifixion with Christ, we were released from Mr. Law. The scriptures tell us that we died to the law through the body of Christ, that we might belong to another. Friends, we are no longer slaves to the law. We are no longer slaves to fear. We are no longer slaves to condemnation. We are slaves to righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Daddy, I thank you so much as I look back across this series of messages, the fruit of transformation. And what a way to end this series that we would be reminded repeatedly that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. That we don't have to add our labor. We don't have to add our toiling. We don't have to add our works. We don't have to add our own acts to what Jesus did at the cross. It is a finished work. And when that reality becomes our reality, I thank you, Father, that the scales, the cataracts, if you will, of the old covenant are just broken off of our lives and we become people of rest, people of peace, people of joy, people of confidence, bathed in the blood of Jesus that flowed from his side. But the Holy Spirit is always with us drawing us, drawing us to see the kindness of the Lord and the love of the Lord. And Father, I thank you as Jesus is revealed in all of his holiness, as Jesus is made known in all of his ways, and as this new covenant takes root in our heart, Daddy, it displaces fear and condemnation. I said it many times throughout the message, Father, I'll say it again. We are slaves to righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.